Well, this morning it is my joy and privilege to turn again to the Word of God with you. If your Bible's still in Romans 12 from our scripture reading, that's, a, that's where we'll be this morning in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I told you a few weeks back that our, my ultimate desire is to get into the book of Hebrews soon, uh, but mentioned a, a special series on the Holy Spirit, and I've decided to hold off on that. I'll probably do that special series somewhere in the middle of Hebrews, because some of the issues that I wanted to cover in that actually come up early in Hebrews. So we're going to dive into Hebrews um, in two weeks. I'll actually be away next week, and then we will dive into Hebrews the following week. But this morning, I wanted to talk about another pressing issue that I think is very appropriate for this cultural moment in which we find ourselves. If you were with us last week, we talked about issues of conscience. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if, if you were not with us, as we talked about making decisions when the Bible does not give a clear command, either positively or negatively. But I think there's a, another theme that we have to touch on that's perhaps even more urgent than our knowledge of issues of conscience. The truth is you would have to live under a rock not to notice the extreme moral decline of our world and American culture. Moral lines of demarcation between holy and wicked living that once defined our cultural perspective are being moved further and further towards wickedness seemingly hour by hour. Many of the moral issues facing us today were unimaginable even 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30, or 50 years ago. The philosophy of postmodernism entered our culture and argued that truth is relative, and therefore there is no objective standard of truth for all people to which all people must adhere. And this cancerous ideology began, of course, in academia, as all new systems of thought began. But it clear, uh, quickly left the classroom and entered into the popular cultural perspective. Now this idea that truth is relative and there's no standard to which all men are accountable has become widely accepted and by many unchallenged as the dogma or truth to which we all must adhere, which of course contradicts the philosophy itself. The last holdout in the unbelieving world, not obviously the church spoke out against these things, but in the unbelieving world, the, the last holdout against post-modernity was, of course, the sciences. After all, the scientific method has long been thought of as, by unbelievers as that, that clear determiner of truth. If a hypothesis can be tested and proven by the scientific method, then it is unquestionably true. Of course, we know there are inconsistencies even in that discipline as well, but, but still, we would expect that of all the disciplines that the unbelieving world holds dear, that the sciences, for sure, would hold up against postmodernism. And yet, here we are. We live in a world of contradiction, in which even the scientific method is out of step with the rushing river of confusion brought on by postmodernity. For example, it's a criminal offense to destroy the egg of a bald eagle But a human being in the womb is simply tissue that can be destroyed at a mother's discretion. Or though a person's gender can be unquestionably proven by a simple blood test, we're told that it is hate speech and cruelty of the highest measure to insist that biological gender be upheld. And this moral decline and rebellion against God can weigh on us as Christians like a heavy boulder upon our chest. We look around and we wonder what in the world has happened. 
What's happened to the country and the culture that I've grown up in, that I've, that I've grown up to, to love and cherish? And then our thoughts turn immediately to the future, and we say, if it's this way today, and we look in the faces of our children and our grandchildren, and we say, what's going to happen to them? What's it going to be like in their adult lives if the situation is what it is now? And so a probing question now hangs in the air. As Christians, what do we do? What do we do? And I fear that for many of us, when we hear that question, our minds turn to political action. We, when we think of how we must respond, we immediately think of political strategies to get our, our nation back on track. And the truth is, we are citizens of this temporal earthly kingdom, and we have the right to use all legal means available to fight for our constitutional rights. But, the, but there is no political action that is commanded in Scripture of all Christians. Different Christians will make different choices on how much they are or are not engaged in the political realm. But the Scriptures instead give us a different conclusion when it comes to the question of what do we do in the face of such moral decline. And here is the universal response required of every Christian. We must be holy in an unholy world. We must be holy in an unholy world. The Christian response to the current cultural moment is not despair or worry or fear. We serve the sovereign God of the universe who holds the heart of every king in his hand and he directs that king like channels of water, the Bible says. You and your children and your grandchildren could have been born at any other moment in history. And yet God, in his sovereignty, chose that this would be your cultural moment, that this would be the time when they were born. And God makes no mistakes. His plans move forward unhindered, and the church of Jesus Christ will stand because he will make it stand. We do not need to fear for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren. And so this morning, what I would like to do is take our time looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and just reminding us of some crucial realities that must define us, especially in the culture in which we live. Let's read Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What Paul says to us in a nutshell in these verses is simple. God's mercy should motivate us to reject worldliness and pursue holiness. God's mercy should motivate us to reject worldliness and pursue holiness. And what we're going to see in this text are four responses to the mercy of God in the gospel. Four responses for every Christian. And the first response comes to us in verse 1, and it's simply this, serve God sacrificially. 
serve God sacrificially. Paul begins there in verse 1 with the word, therefore. I touched on this last week as we set up our message from Romans 14, but understand that when Paul says, therefore, in chapter 12, he's not just talking about the verses that immediately precede uh, chapter 12, but all of chapters 1 through 11. The entirety of what Paul has said in the first 11 chapters leads into this great reality. In fact, for the first 11 chapters of Romans, uh, Paul has spent the bulk of his time giving exposition, giving doctrinal truth. And now, in chapter 12, he turns the corner and he says, here's how you're to live in response to that truth. And that's what we have here in this word, therefore. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul's been developing one crucial theme. It is justification by faith. We are saved, we are justified by faith alone. If this word justification is is new to you, here is the Westminster Catechism's definition of this word. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is the glorious truth that God provides the righteousness that we need to be in his presence through his Son, and that we are are declared, it's a legal declaration before God that we are declared righteous, not based upon our own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us by faith. I want to give you just a short sampling of the way that Paul beautifully describes this this wonderful gift of justification in the earlier chapters of Romans. Obviously, we can't go through everything that he says, but I love Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is a perfect satisfaction of God's wrath, In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love verse 26. We could do a whole series on verse 26, but basically, in in a nutshell, God proves himself to be just. That is, he still punishes sin, and he forgives sin. He's the justifier in the person of Jesus Christ because all sins are paid in Jesus for those uh, who are his, and then those who are, are his become justified. They receive his righteousness. Every sin will be paid for. God's justice is not a sham. Every sin will be paid for either in the person of Christ for those who place their trust in him or by that individual eternally separated from God. And so God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He continues to expound upon this theme of justification throughout the first 11 chapters. And specifically in chapters 9 to 11, Paul begins to deal with this conundrum 
of why it is that so few Jews are responding to the gospel while so many Gentiles are coming to faith. What's happening here? Why have the Jews not responded in great numbers to their Messiah? And Paul explains that. I want to read just the final verses of chapter 11 because this will lead us directly into our chapter together. So let's read, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 11, as Paul deals with this issue. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it's written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience... So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And then Paul goes into this this moment of praise to God. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's with these words that Paul now enters into chapter 12 in this word, therefore. And what he's just spoken about is the fact that God has shown his mercy to all people, both Jew and Gentile. In this current moment in church history, God is saving a large number of Gentiles, but Paul is clear that he's not rejected the Jews forever, but many of the Jews will come to know him as well. And so he says God's mercy is on display in both the Jews and the Gentiles, and so God is worthy of praise. This reminds us that God has saved us from his wrath, but in chapter 12... Paul says he's not only saved us from something, but unto something. We've been saved from the wrath of God unto sanctification, unto a holy life. Remember in in Ephesians 2.10, he says there are these these works which God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so it is those works now that he turns his attention in chapter 12. All of that is context built into that word, therefore. But he continues on and says, Therefore, based on the mercies of God, I urge you, brethren. Now, the translation urge you is, is fine. It can mean to, that word there can mean to urge or to come alongside uh, as a helper. But it can also be used in a more authoritative sense as I exhort you. And I think in context, that's a better translation. He says, therefore, I I exhort you. This is a passionate plea from Paul based on all that he's just said in the first 11 chapters. But he softens the blow of this exhortation, as he often does with the word brethren, reminding them that he, though an apostle, is just their brother in Christ. He says, I urge you, I exhort you, brethren, And then he turns their attention to the key theme that he's just expounded upon. I urge you by the mercies 
of God. That is to say that the mercy of God is to be the motivation for obedience to the command that Paul is about to give. I urge you by the mercy of God extended to you in justification through Jesus Christ. And here is the exhortation. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. To present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Now for us to understand this, we have to for a moment just put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience. Remember that up until the time of Christ, the true people of God related to God and worshipped God through the sacrificial system. To be a true follower of Yahweh was to obey the Mosaic law which required regular daily sacrifices. However, now that Christ has come, those animal sacrifices are are necessarily done away with because they were always intended to point forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews makes that very clear. And now that that ultimate true sacrifice has been made, the, the animal sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant are obsolete. But understand what Paul is doing. He's taking very familiar sacrificial language that would have been the way the Jews were used to talking about worship of Yahweh, and he turns it now to, from an old covenant meaning to a new covenant meaning. In Christ, he uses this term, sacrifice. He says, to present your bodies Unlike in the Mosaic Covenant, where the people were to bring animals and present the animal as an offering, he says, now, in the New Testament, I'm calling you to present your own body as a sacrifice. Now, when he says body, he obviously means this figuratively. He's not calling for us to literally die or to sacrifice ourselves in a physical sense. And we see that by the way he describes this bodily sacrifice. Let me just show you three descriptions here that he gives us of this presentation of our bodies. The first description, he says it's going to be a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. This again is not a call for physical death, but rather a call for life, a life set apart unto God. Living sacrifices. The result of a sacrifice in the old covenant was death, The result of a sacrifice in the new covenant is a transformed life, Paul says. R.C. Sproul writes this, But there is still a New Testament sacrificial system. It is not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement, but a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has been made for us. Paul is saying not to make yourself right with God, but because Jesus has made you right with God through justification, now I want you to make this sacrifice in response to what has happened to you. The body here, of course, includes the physical body, but it's not limited to that. It really means the entirety of the person. The body in the scripture is associated with what we call the flesh. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, that there is this battle for the believer. Once you come to know Jesus Christ, you enter into this battle where your your flesh is battling against your new nature, and that's why you continue to have a sin battle as a believer, even after coming to Christ. You have a new nature in Christ, but it now battles against your flesh. And that's the idea here with this this body that we are to sacrifice. It's more than just the physical body, it's, but it also includes the physical body. 
After all, it is the physical body that is sort of the beachhead of where the flesh manifests itself. It's through our bodies that we sin with our speech and with our actions. And so clearly it, it calls for a, using our bodies in a way that would honor the Lord. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 20. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So clearly it it deals with our physical body, glorifying God with our physical body, but also with the entirety of our person, with this internal battle of the flesh. But there's a second description of this sacrifice. Not only is it a living sacrifice, but it is a holy sacrifice. This means that we are, are to not only be set apart to God positionally, but in actuality, that, that in progressively through life, that we are to be sanctified unto God. These are to be real, holy lives of obedience. So Paul is calling for the sacrifice of our sinful desires to continually, regularly put to death the desires of the flesh. We see this in places like 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says something similar He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is the call. This is what it is to be a holy sacrifice. Remember, those animals that were sacrificed under the old covenant had to be uh, physically perfect, right? Without blemish. You couldn't bring a sick, uh, lame animal. In the same way, what Paul is saying here is that once we become a believer, we've been justified We are to become progressively holy, actual holiness, becoming more and more like our Savior. 
This is what it is to be a living sacrifice. It is to be in a constant state of putting to death our flesh and living a truly holy life so that our moral character looks more and more like the Savior who saved us. We see that this is Christ's uh, reason for saving us. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. What is he doing? Here in this passage about husbands and wives, we see what Christ is doing for his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. That is, make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We are to be living sacrifices, holy sacrifices. But there is a third description. We are to be an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. That word acceptable carries with it the idea of, of pleasing, a sacrifice that pleases the Lord. And this is good news for us because it, it describes the fact that a Christian who is in pursuit, not in perfection, but in the direction of their life of, of holiness, that is an acceptable act of worship before the Lord, that God is pleased with us when we pursue holiness. And so we see that the mercy of God extended towards us in justification should propel us to joyfully, willingly, Live for him as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable. Paul goes on in this passage to describe that this actually is what is right and logical for us. He says, which is your spiritual service of worship? To be a living sacrifice in this way is, Paul says, your spiritual service of worship. Now that word spiritual there. Uh, there's some debate about how to translate that word, but I think a better translation is either rational or reasonable. The idea is that this, this just makes sense. It's common sense that if you're a Christian who's been justified by God's grace through faith, you should also be zealous to be sanctified, to be holy. It's a natural response to justification. Having been redeemed by Christ, the Christian is now given new spiritual life and a new nature in which they desperately desire to grow in holiness. That's why any gospel message that teaches that a person can be genuinely justified, genuinely saved, and yet have no desire for or pursuit of sanctification is a false gospel. The gospel results in sanctification, a progressive sanctification in the life of the believer. After all, remember how Paul described himself after coming to Christ, Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In fact, Paul says that living a holy life as a living sacrifice to God is one of the primary ways that we worship God as Christians. He says, which is your rational or spiritual service of worship? Now, when we think about worshiping God, we often think about singing songs, which is a form of worship. 
Maybe we think about the preaching of God's word, which is a form of worship, perhaps serving him with our gifts. Those are all forms of worship. But here Paul says one of the primary ways that you and I are to serve the Lord is every day, daily, engaging in this battle of killing sin and putting on righteousness. And as you do that, this is your rational service of worship. This is what makes sense for the Christian. As, a, as an overflow of what God has done for me, I want to dedicate my daily life to living for him more and more, hour by hour. With that in mind, we have to stop and ask the question, have you personally been transformed by the mercy of God in salvation? The question you have to answer this morning is not did, did I grow up in church or did I fill out a card or did I pursue baptism even? The question you have to answer is has my life been changed in regards to sin? Because when you come to understand that you are a sinner before a holy God, that you can do nothing to make yourself right with God, but God, in his kindness, sent his perfect son to take on human flesh and to live a perfect life and to willingly offer that life as a sacrifice for sin and then to rise again victorious over the grave. That changes you. And when you understand that the Bible says if you will repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that you will indeed be saved that produces something in the heart of a person that's a true Christian that says more than just, okay, sure, I'll, I'll be a Christian. No, it brings a, a true recognition of sin, a true desire to follow after this Jesus. I want to know this God. I, I want to serve this God. I want to follow him. I want to be like him. So the question stands, have you personally come to be a recipient of the mercy of God in Christ? The Bible says if you will turn from your sin, placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, you will be saved. You will be justified. The righteousness of God applied to you and your sin applied to him. We cannot be a living sacrifice unto God if we've not first been justified. But perhaps you're here this morning and you've come to know true salvation through Christ. And while there has been growth in your life by God's grace, if you're honest, you would say, I want to be more faithful. I know I could be more of a living sacrifice to God. Now the question becomes, how? How do we actually live lives as a sacrifice to God? How do we live as a living sacrifice? What does this include? Well, Paul goes on to describe two more responses. And what he's going to do is, 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 after giving us this overarching instruction, he's going to give us two commands, one negative command and one positive command. It says, if you want to be a living sacrifice, first of all, here's what you have to not do, and here's what you must actively pursue. So let's look at this second response, which is the first command, the negative command, reject worldly conformity. Reject worldly conformity. Paul says in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Again, this is a command from Paul of what we're not supposed to do. And the word conformed means to form according to a pattern or a mold. To be a living sacrifice, we cannot allow ourselves to be pressed into the mold of the world. The sinful mold that the culture would have us believe is right or virtuous. 
And he says, to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. That, that word world is actually the word for age. When he says world, he's not talking about the physical planet itself, but rather the sinful and demonic philosophies and ideologies that rule the thinking and living of the unbelieving world. Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. There's our word. According to the will of our God and Father. What is it that characterizes this age or world in which we live? The Apostle John describes it in summary form in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here we go, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Those three descriptions describe the large categories of this, this worldly philosophy of the age that swept across our world and honestly has been sweeping across the world since sin entered. The, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Paul uses a different Greek word in Ephesians chapter 2, but he describes the same reality. Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, listen, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. He says this is what characterizes every unbeliever. They live in accordance with the course of the world, of the age. They live in the, according to the course of, of what Satan is sowing in this evil, sinful, unbelieving world. Understand that it's no coincidence that our culture and world are in a continual state of moral decline. We should not be surprised by this. If it, if it seems like there's this coordinated effort to force immorality and godless ideologies down your throat and the throats of your children, that's because there is. But that coordinated effort finds its root not in Hollywood or the West Coast, but in Satan himself. The prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls him in Ephesians, is the mastermind behind the spirit of the age. And that spirit captivates and defines fallen humanity. Now, the fruit of that sinful world system shows up on your television screen and in wicked laws and legislations. But its root is the great enemy of our God who has been seeking to thwart and pervert God's good design since the garden. We see actors and politicians on screens and in headlines pushing godless practices and ideologies that they believe are on the cutting edge of virtue and intellectual excellence. But as believers, we have to understand that what's really going on is the exact same thing that started in the perfect garden scene in Genesis chapter 3. When Satan whispered that wicked question to Eve, has God said? Every time you see a commercial that promotes the LGBTQ agenda or hear a politician speak of the murder of an innocent baby as a, a woman's health issue, you're hearing the same age-old question in new contemporary clothes. Has God said? 
And the speed and force with which our culture is desperately trying to force you and me to not only accept the spirit of the age, but to call it good, is simply an attempt to conform us to the mold of worldliness. And Paul says, Christian, do not be conformed to this age. Do not allow yourself to be pressed into that mold And if you think the pressure is strong now, it's only going to get worse. Once this ball starts to roll down the hill, it only picks up speed. And we cannot conform to the world. But we have to be very clear as we speak about this truth and seek to apply it. Exactly what types of things in this world are we to resist conformity to? R.C. Sproul points out that there's a danger of misunderstanding Paul's point here. He says, often Christian ethics is determined simply on the basis of antithesis. If the world wears lipstick, the Christian doesn't wear lipstick to show that she is spiritual rather than worldly. If the world goes to movies, Christians don't go to movies to show that they are more spiritual, more pious. That's nonsense. That's the kind of attitude the Pharisees had, which distorted the truth. Christ calls us to a special kind of nonconformity, a refusal to conform to the sinful patterns of the world, to patterns of disobedience. So when Paul says, Christian, do not be conformed to the world, he doesn't mean that we have to wear frumpy clothing or reject cultural norms and forms of entertainment in and of themselves. Instead, he says, reject the mold of sinful rebellion that's being promoted by the world. But I fear that there's another great danger lying under the surface of this recent boldness and audacity of our culture to push for a new standard of morality. As Christians, as as true believers, the true church should see the obvious problems with these new things that are being pressed so dramatically. But the biggest danger that I see for the true church in this cultural climate is not the acceptance of the world's most outlandish moral suggestions, but instead the bigger danger is that the morality of the world will become the rubric by which we judge our own growth and holiness. What I mean is this, it's pretty easy to see ourselves as holy when we use the world as the measuring stick. But if the world is our measuring stick of holiness, then we will slide with the world. And things that we used to hold dear as the line is here, we will find that we are moving away from the line even though we're not adopting the outlandish claims of the world. The problem is the world has never been the standard for holiness. Christ is the standard for holiness. And that brings us to Paul's second positive command. It is not enough simply to resist conformity to the world. We must positively seek to be transformed into the image of Christ. As we saw in Colossians, our sanctification is not just a matter of putting off sin, but of putting on righteousness. And that brings us to response number three, pursue gospel transformation. Pursue gospel transformation. Verse two, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul uses the force of these two commands here to give us a very simple and yet profound action plan for being living sacrifices unto God. 
Not only are we to put off worldliness, we're to be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we have a problem here because this command, the verb, be transformed, is a passive verb. What that means is it has to happen to us. He's commanding for something to happen to us that's outside of our control. It's also a present tense verb, meaning it's to be continual. We are to daily, regularly be transformed. The fact that it's a passive command reminds us that this must be the work of the Holy Spirit. That there can be no transformation into the image of Christ apart from the Spirit's work within us. But that does not mean that there's nothing that we can or should do or must do in this process. Because he adds to the command, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's where our effort comes in. The way in which the Spirit daily transforms us is through the means of the renewing of our minds. So how does this happen? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. I love this passage. He writes, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, that is the, specifically the Pentateuch, but all of the Old Testament, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Spirit, or the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, this is a very uh, wordy, somewhat complicated passage, but let me break it down for you because it's very helpful. Remember that when Moses spent time in the presence of God, when he came out, his face would glow with the glory of God. Remember that? And the people could not look at him. He had to put a veil over his face because the people could not stand it. Paul is using an illustration here of, of how this transfers over to the Christian life in a sense that, that Moses' face would glow with the glory of God, the Christian is to behold the sun. And as we behold the sun, we are being transformed by inch by inch, glory by glory into his image. Little steps into the glory of God. That is, that we begin to reflect God. Where do we see the glory of Christ? If we want to behold the face of Jesus, where do we look? In the scriptures. In the word of God. When you study God's word as a Christian, the Spirit of God illuminates and applies its truth to your heart. And the more you behold the glory of Christ in the word, the more the Spirit transforms you into his image, glory by glory, step by step. And you become a reflection of Christ one degree at a time. So brothers and sisters, don't you see that what we're to do is we are bombarded with the wickedness of this sinful fallen world is to stop looking at the world and to fix our gaze on Christ. This is what we must do. Look into the face of your Redeemer. See him in every word and every line of Scripture. And as you behold the Son and the Word of God, the Spirit will use the Word to sanctify you, to wash you with the water of the Word, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5. 
This is what it is to renew your mind. The ministry of the Spirit in your life is to take the Word of God as you, as you take that in, to illuminate it and to apply it, and over time you are transformed into Christ-likeness. And then as we read the Word and hide it in our hearts, we take it with us out into the world. And when the world and the flesh, the devil, throw their darts of sinful temptation, we meet those darts with the shield of God's word. And we stand firm in the truth. We actively wash our minds with the word through meditation. And we filter everything through the scriptures. Listen, the world will continue to create various molds that beckon for our conformity. We're to respond by filtering every single mold and idea through the scriptures. And anything that doesn't mesh with the scriptures is thrown out and rejected. And this transformation produces in us a knowledge of and desire to obey the will of God. Just quickly, there's one fourth response. Practice God's will. Practice God's will. He ends here and says, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The key to growing in spiritual discernment is the daily process of being transformed by renewing your mind with truth. As you do that, you will be able to see the will of God and approve of the will of God and walk according to the will of God. Understand, if you are looking for God's will, you will find it on the pages of Scripture. So many Christians who sincerely want to know the will of God are walking around stumbling in the dark because they're looking in all the wrong places. You do not learn God's will for your life by listening for a still, small voice in your head or by following feelings of peace in your heart. If you want to know the will of God, Christian... Read your Bible. It is there that God has spoken to us. God is not going to give you new revelation. The work of the Spirit in this generation, in this dispensation in church history, is to take the revelation we already have and to illuminate that and then to apply it to our hearts. This is where we have the will of God. And so if you want to know God's will and walk in accordance with it, know your Bible then you will be able to discern and approve the will of God and you will see every mold that the world tries to form you into as the ruse that it is, as the rebellion that it is because you know the word. And this will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Unlike the mold of the world that if you give into will leave you full of, of shame, weighed down with the burden of sin, the will of God is good. It's acceptable. It is perfect. Listen to me, Christian, you will never regret, regret following the will of God in Scripture, even when it brings hardship and persecution. But you will feel the shame and regret and pain of following the way of the world. Put off conformity to the world and pursue Christ. The key then to living as a living sacrifice to God is to reject worldly conformity and to pursue transformation through the truth of Scripture. Listen, the world responds to God's standard with the words of Satan, has God said. But Christian, when you're threatened with the arrows of the enemy and the temptations of darkness, you follow the pattern of your Savior and declare, it 
is written. In light of such a passage, it's important for us to survey our own lives. First of all, survey your heart and life for worldliness. Do a personal checkup. Is there any area where your perspective or opinion has been shaped more by the opinions of the age in which we live rather than the Scripture? Are there any areas in your life right now that you know are not a result of biblical transformation but are a result of conformity to the world? As you identify those, repent of those, bring yourself back to the truth, and in obedience follow what God says, rejecting the world's wisdom and standard and submitting to the truth. And then finally, secondly, renew your mind with the truth of Scripture. Paul is clear that the renewal of our minds is the key to being transformed and sanctified. This can only come by the work of the Spirit through the Word. Let me ask you, how quickly does your mind turn to the Scriptures when you're faced with daily decisions and temptations? Have you fallen into the temptation to just run inside and hide or, or despair as you watch the moral decline of our world? Listen, don't despair and don't hide. Be the light of the world. Pursue transformation into the image of Christ through the word and then go out into the world and let the light of Christ and the gospel shine into the darkness. That is our role. I'll close with this. I've been captivated by this short little description in Acts 13, 36 of of David. It's really a passing statement, but listen to how David's life is described. It says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. What's our role in the world? It's right there. This is your generation, Christian. Serve God in it with all you have until he brings you home. It's as simple as that. I pray that one day they can say of me, he served the purpose of God in his generation, and he fell asleep. That's what it boils down to. May we serve him with all of our might until he brings us to himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that At times, though we know we shouldn't be, we are tempted to be conformed to the patterns and ideologies of this world. Increasingly, as we are bombarded daily with different ideas and thoughts and forms of rebellion, God, we know that the temptations will only grow stronger to to begin to see things as normal that are not normal to begin to see things as benign that, in fact, are rebellion. God, help us to see rightly. And we know that we can only do so in, in so much as we are in the Scriptures, as we're saturated with the truth, and as we choose to believe that what you say is true, and let God be true and every man a liar. But God, we pray that you would help us to have not a hardness towards the lost, but a softness that sees them rightly, that though they are living in rebellion against you, they are caught up in this world system according to the prince of the power of the air, that they are simply doing what we would be doing if we had not been brought to salvation. God, help us to be the light of the world. God, help us to get out of our homes and go across the street speaking the the truth of the gospel to those 
that we have opportunity. God, help us to take seriously the task of pursuing holiness in our lives and telling every person that we can about the good news of Jesus until you take us home to be with you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But until then, may we be faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.